0: Do you realize that's the last sound you're going to hear before we take taking up to meet him in the air? That's the sound that caused the walls of Jericho to fall down. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. You know, in our time of worship, I noticed in that second song, when that gorgeous voice, that angelic voice, was talking about, you are, I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. You know, there are so many Christians that walk like that little character in Peanuts with a little cloud (laughs) over their head. Because too many Christians have an identity problem. They have allowed the devil to label them. Wow. And we need to really take to heart I am who God says I am. <clears throat> and who does God says you are? In first letter of Peter, God says you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Some are more peculiar than others. <laughs> but we are different. Because we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. Amen. And so I was talking to the first service about something that I it bears repeat. Who are you? You are, I was, as we sang earlier, who God says you are. Who does God say you are? I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And uh, this is a verse of scripture that you not only need to underline, you need to memorize. Because this is your identity. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, But he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for you, that you may become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. So there was a covenant exchange of robes at the cross. Jesus became who we were that we may become who he is. Now, you probably all have heard, as a matter of fact, you may have repeated it yourself, I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace. It sounds so humbling. It sounds so pious but it's not scriptural. The Bible never says you are a sinner saved by grace. You were a sinner that were saved by grace. What the Bible says you are is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. And that means you walk in his righteousness. He became sin that you may become his righteousness. Now, I am going to say something that may upset your religious apple cart. You are as righteous as Jesus. Let me repeat it. You are as righteous as Jesus. And if your religious... Humility is shaken. I can tell you this. you got two choices. You either got God's righteousness or you have self-righteousness. Take your pick. And let me tell you the liberating truth of understanding that you're the righteousness of God in Christ. Because when that truth sinks from your head to your heart, sinks into your spirit, the devil has no power over you. Because you walk in God's righteousness. The problem with most Christians is they walk in sin consciousness. And when you are in sin consciousness, you are under condemnation all the time. So we need to change our cassette and change from being sin conscious to being righteousness conscious. When you do that, The natural thing for you to do is to walk in righteousness because that's who you are. But if the devil can convince you, no, 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 you're nothing but a sinner saved by grace. You're going to walk with that little cloud over your head. We are more than victorious in Christ Jesus because, as we sang in the last song, we're never alone. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are never alone. Read Psalms 139. No matter if you go to the highest mountain or to the depth of the ocean, he's there with you. Hallelujah. Christ in you, the hope of glory, says the book of Colossians. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, I want to talk to you about what our responsibility is in the civic society, and I want to do that both from a biblical standpoint and from a historical standpoint. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians three eleven: for no other foundation can any man lay than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. You know, 400 years ago, the pilgrims came from England, fleeing religious persecution. Deeply committed men and women of God. They landed in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And before they got off the boat, they penned a document. It was called the Mayflower Compact. And the Mayflower Compact begins by stating their purpose for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. That was their stated purpose. Do you realize what that means? That means America is the only country in the world that was founded as a Christian nation. As a Christian nation. What a glorious heritage. Mayflower Compact. Continues, in the presence of God, we covenant and combine ourselves together to form a civic body politic. In other words, some form of government. Why? For our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. What are the ends aforesaid? The glory of God and the advancement of the christian faith what a glorious heritage i tell you what i am so proud to be an american i love this country with a passion and so should you hallelujah 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 thank you jesus thank you for the privilege of being americans and living on the greatest country And then we got a double blessing. We live in the greatest state within the greatest country on the face of the earth. Hallelujah. 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 What a great blessing. I'll tell you, don't take it for granted. Be thankful unto God. You know something? I've seen the other side, and it ain't pretty. It ain't pretty. We need to thank God for the great privilege of being Americans, Do you realize that America is only about 4.5% of the population of the world? And yet, we have been responsible for over 80% of the evangelism of the world. We've also been responsible for exporting freedom and free enterprise throughout the world. There are nations that have build their constitution using our constitution as a model. How exciting is that? But you know, maybe some of you were taught, certainly our kids are being taught, that the American Revolution started in the 1770s, but that's not true. American Revolution really started in the 1730s with men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and others. Let me mention one that you probably never heard of. His name was Harry Hoosier. Harry Hoosier was a black preacher from uh, Indiana. Indiana. He was considered in the 1770s the greatest orator in America. He was a tremendous soul winner and he and Charles Finney were the two really bulwarks of the Second Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening was the spark that ignited the American Revolution. As a matter of fact, you look at the Declaration of Independence, and I count 19 grievances against King George in the Declaration of Independence. Did you know that each and every one of those grievances were preached from the pulpits of America for 10 years prior to Jefferson writing them in the declaration. It was preachers, pastors from the pulpit calling out King George for the atrocities that the British were perpetrating upon the colonies. The question that begs an answer is where are those pastors today? The majority of them are hiding behind their pulpits trying to be politically correct. Well, it's about time we become biblically correct instead of politically correct. The British are coming. The British are coming. Remember Paul Revere? Did you know that Paul Revere was going somewhere when he was writing? He was going to the home of a pastor, a pastor by the name of Jonas Clark. And at his home, there were two patriots hiding John Hancock and Samuel Adams. They were the two most wanted men by the British Army. They were instructed to capture them and hang them by force sedition by the way did you know there was a black patriot riding with paul revere his name was wentsworth cheswell another tidbit that has been erased from our history Wentworth cheswell was the first african american to hold public office in federal government in the united states and he held Nine different posts in public office in the late 1700s. And uh, of course, you know what was the first battle for our independence, right? The Battle of Lexington. But did you know that the Battle of Lexington was fought right outside the church of Pastor Jonas Clark? As a matter of fact, at the Battle of Lexington, eight colonists died. Seven of those eight were members of Pastor Jonas Clark's church. Why? Because the pastor, hear me well, the pastor and all the men of the congregation were at the forefront of that battle. Again, we keep thinking, where are those pastors today? Battle of Concord. Second battle. Fought right outside the church at Concord. And then the British began retreating north back to Boston. And you read in the history books that the uh, militias would come to the road and shoot at the British, and they killed about 600 British soldiers as they retreated to Boston. What they don't tell you is that those militias were primarily composed of pastors and the men from their congregations. But let me tell you about my favorite pastor. His name was John Peter Muhlenberg, Lutheran pastor in Woodstock, Virginia. Pastor Muhlenberg was one of many pastors that they called, the British called them the Black Robe Regiment because they all wore long black robes. Pastor Muhlenberg is preaching at his church in Woodstock, Virginia one day in early 1776. He's preaching on Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He concludes with verse 8, which says, there's a time of war and a time for peace. He says, this is a time for war. He pulls from behind his pulpit a musket. He opens his black robe, and as he opens it, he uncovers his colonel's uniform in the Virginia militia. He turns to his congregation and he says, how many of you men will join me to go fight for our independence? 300 men joined Pastor Colonel John Peter Muhlenberg that Sunday to go fight for our independence. Now, meanwhile, Peter had a brother. Frederick Muhlenberg. Frederick was also a pastor in New York City. And Frederick is sending letters to Peter. Remember, this is before emails and texts and all of that. Not even phones. So he's sending letters to Peter. You're prostituting the gospel. Separation of church and state. You shouldn't be involved in politics until the British burned Frederick's church. (laughs) And then Frederick said, well, uh, maybe I better get involved. (laughs) How many of you saw the movie The Patriot? Many of you. Do you remember that scene where the British burned a church? Well, the British didn't burn one church. They burned many churches. Why? Because the revolution was being forced In the churches. In the churches. Again, there's a question that begs an answer. Where are those pastors today? Too many of them are hiding behind their pulpits, scared to death of offending somebody. You know, so Jesus was never afraid of offending somebody. (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, let me tell you something, a tidbit of history. Frederick was the first speaker of the house. The guy who was calling for separation of church and state, he was the first speaker of the house. And Peter was also a member of that first congress. And the two of them were pivotal in the passing of the First Amendment, protecting our religious freedom. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, you look at the Declaration of Independence, and you know, if you talk and listen to the secularists across America, You know who they are? They tell you the framers were a bunch of secularists. They were deists. Nothing could be further from the truth. Did you know that 29 of the 56 signers of the Declaration were seminary graduates? They were theologians. They were deeply committed men of God. It's a matter of fact. The pastor told me that I had to hold myself to 45 minutes in the first service. He said, you got all the time you want on the second service, <laughs> so maybe we'll have lunch at about three o'clock. <laughs> but I want to tell you about those two so-called deists. I mean, they tell you, everybody said, all the most ungodly framers, you know who they say? Thomas Jefferson yeah. and Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. Let me tell you about those two men. First of all, Thomas Jefferson. Did you know that Thomas Jefferson wrote a complete, annotated Bible, Genesis to Revelation? That's a work of multiple years. But not only that. On the third year of of Jefferson's vice presidency, as vice president, he was the president of the Senate. Jefferson signed an order allowing church services to be conducted in the rotunda of the Capitol, what is called today Statuary Hall. Jefferson rode his horse every Sunday to those services as vice president, and the eight years that he was president, he rode his horse every Sunday from the the White House to the Capitol to attend those services. Those services lasted 65 years every Sunday at the Capitol, with as many as 2,000 people in attendance. So much for separation of church and state. As a matter of fact, the only reason they stopped was because those pastors began building their own church buildings. By the way, did you know that we're having church services in the Capitol again? Every Wednesday, a pastor friend of mine by the name of Dan Cummings, from Texas, where else? He started church services a few years ago in one of the meeting rooms in the Capitol every Wednesday night, and about... Seven months ago, he started church services on Sunday for the police in the, in the Capitol. On Wednesday, it's open for members of the House and the Senate and their staff. On Sunday, for all the Capitol police. And every year, this is another tidbit of history, when George Washington was uh, became president, his first act, he went to that church that is at Ground Zero. And he kneeled down, and he committed this country to the Lord. And Pastor Dan Cummings, every year, he does an event. My son and I have spoken at that event two or three times where, we, where a bunch of pastors and people from across the nation go there to pray and recommit our nation to the Lord. He does that in Statuary Hall, right in the middle of the Capitol every year. I think this year is around April, so I got an invitation from him. I don't remember the date now. That is what's happening today. Let me tell you about the other, the one they call the most ungodly framer, the so-called deist, Benjamin Franklin. The Constitution, the Constitutional Convention had been going on for about four weeks. And it was falling apart because all the delegates were at each other's necks. Barbara, you've seen some of that in the legislature, have you not? (laughs) Unfortunately, more often than we'd like to see. But anyway, they were at each other's necks. And it was none other than Benjamin Franklin that addresses the president of the convention, George Washington. And he says, sir. How is it that we have not once called upon the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding? Or have we forgotten when we first started our struggle against Great Britain? How we met in this very chamber for prayer, seeking his protection? Sir, those prayers were graciously answered. Or do we believe that we no longer need his assistance? And then he said, sir, I have lived a long time. And the longer I live, the more assured I am of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. That's not the statement of a deist. And then he said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can be built without his aid, as the Holy Scripture tells, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that building. And then he said, if we proceed to build this, without him, we will fare no better than the builders of Babel. He concluded by saying, I beseech you, therefore, that from now henceforth, Before we proceed with our deliberations, we meet in this chamber every morning on our knees in prayer, seeking his wisdom and direction. They left the Constitutional Convention under the leadership of Pastor Witherspoon, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence for prayer and fasting. They came back in a totally different spirit on their knees every morning. Seven weeks later, they gave us the greatest document that has ever been written in history outside of the Bible, the Constitution of the United States of America. I tell you, I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Constitution Is a divinely inspired document. Because those framers were on their knees seeking revelation from God. And revelation is what they got. Do you realize that this is the number one source for the Constitution? Let me give you a couple of tidbits. One of them I'm going to talk about a little later. But why are we a constitutional representative republic and not a democracy? Exodus 18, 21 and 22. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Why do we have three branches of government? Isaiah 33:22, where God says, I'm your king, I'm your judge, I'm your lawgiver. They're the three branches of government. Why are, ta- are churches tax exempt? Not because of the IRS. Because of Ezra 724, which says, the priests and Levites and the workers of the temple shall be free from taxes and excise, right out of the word of God. We need to understand our foundations, Because if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That was the number one source. The second source was Blackstone's dictionary of law. Blackstone's dictionary of law is a it is a jewel. That is the dictionary. You know what the definitions in that dictionary are? Right out of the word of God. Those were the two sources for the Constitution. Alexis de Toxville. He came to America right after the American Revolution. And he said, I sought for the greatness of America, in and genius of America, in her commodious harbors, and her ample rivers, and her fertile fields, and its boundless forests, and her vast world commerce, and her majestic constitution. And it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and saw their pulpits flame with righteousness, did I understand the genius of her The secret of her genius and power. And then he said something very profound. I want you to pay close attention. He said, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. I'm going to repeat it. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. We are seeing a direct frontal attack today on the goodness of America. There are forces alive and well trying to tear down the goodness of America, and if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. We need to be very self-conscious of that. Now, you hear all this garbage about separation of church and state, separation of church and state. I already told you, we had church services in the capital for 65 years. That don't sound like separation of church and state. Well, let me say this, when this new constitutional representative republic was founded, all 13 colonies were concerned that this new government was going to impose on them a state denomination like their forefathers suffered 200 years ago in England. I mean, when they came, if you were not a member of the Church of England, you were a heretic. You were persecuted. So all of them were concerned. And by the way, a little tidbit. When the Constitution talks about religion in the First Amendment, what they meant was denominations. Because they were all Christians. They were all Christians. Don't believe that lie that they were Muslims and Buddhists and all these Hindus. They were not. There were all Christians and a few Jews. That was it, that was it. As a matter of fact, I'll give you another tidbit of history. Did you know that the 13 colonies, each colony basically only had one denomination? Why was that? Because it was pastors with their congregations that founded the colonies. Baptist pastors with their congregations founded Rhode Island. So Rhode Island was Baptist. Pennsylvania was founded by Quaker pastors and their congregations. So Pennsylvania was Quaker. Maryland was founded by Catholic priests and their congregation. So Maryland was Catholic. So basically, practically one denomination in each of the 13 colonies and and that was the reason because the pastors were the one and then when they found that the colonies they would say to one another well how do we do this government thing so who started this government thing pastors pastors out of what out of this book out of this book we need to get back to that but Nevertheless, you know, here now, Jefferson is president. And all 13 colonies are concerned. Is this new government going to impose a state state denomination on us like the King of England did to our forefathers 200 years before? So the Delbury Baptists from Rhode Island write a letter to President Jefferson to express the concerns of all 13 colonies. So Jefferson writes them a letter back to appease their fears. He begins this letter by saying, believing with you that in re- religion is a matter which lays solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith of his worship. In other words, it's only between you and God and no one else. Has the right to interfere. And then he quotes verbatim the First Amendment of the Constitution. He said that the legislation should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Very clearly. And so, after that, he says, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. If you take these three statements in context, it is absolutely obvious that Jefferson is talking about a one-way wall. A one-way wall to keep government from interfering with our free exercise of religion. A one-way wall to keep government from uh, establishing a state religion. In no way, shape, or form can you infer that Jefferson is saying that we should not be involved in the civic society. As a matter of fact, Jesus said exactly the opposite. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You know something? Salt is a preserver. For in order for soul to preserve anything, you have to put it upon that which you want to preserve. That's out there. Jesus also said, you are the light of the world. But let me tell you what many churches do. We come to our churches with our little flashlights, pointing the light on one another. Boy, are we great about criticizing one another, about <laughs> gossiping about one another. But you know something, Light is not good unless you point it to darkness. That's out there in the marketplace. We got to stop just playing church inside the four walls, and we need to take the church out there. There's a whole world going to hell in a handbasket, and we are singing hallelujah in here. I'm not saying don't sing hallelujah, but take the church out there. We need to be involved in every area of society. We have to be salt and light in education. God knows we need it. Secular humanism has taken over the education in our country. And our children are brainwashed with all kinds of garbage because we took our hands off education. We need to have our hands in the media. Boy, the media has gone way out the other way. On sports, on music, on business. Yeah. You know, I've gone outside this country to teach Christians how do you do business according to the Word of God. We call that marketplace ministry. And uh, and going to some countries where people are hungry. How do I do business as a Christian? The Word of God has a lot to say about that. As a matter of fact, you know something? I was a sales trainer for several years, and I taught sales training using nothing but the Word of God. Nothing but the Word of God. Teaching business, but nothing but the Word of God. There's wisdom on every area. We need to be salt and light also in government. In government. Because if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know, actually, our foundations began being destroyed at an accelerated pace back in 1933. In 1933, there was a very ominous document signed in America. It was called the Humanist Manifesto. Humanist Manifesto was patterned after another document called the Communist Manifesto. The two are uncannily identical. As a matter of fact, in my book that is out in the foyer, I have a comparison between those two, and it's shockingly how similar they are. Now, one of the things you may not know, one of the principal signers of the Humanist Manifesto was a man by the name of Dr. John Dewey. Most of us know who John Dewey was. He's considered the father of modern American education. What you may not know is that five years before, in 1928, John Dewey went to Russia as a special guest of Joseph Stalin. He came back from Russia speaking glowingly about how great the Russian public education system was. As a matter of fact, there's a comment that says Dewey found Marxism useful, if not indispensable in the formulation of his educational theories. So American public education since 1933 has been undergirded by secular humanism and Marxism. Now let me stop here for a minute. I'm not talking against teachers. There are many wonderful teachers in this country but they are working under a flawed system. They're working under a system that in many schools across America, if you put a Bible on top of your desk, you're fired or you're reprimanded. In Texas, a few years ago, in Houston, a young seven-year-old girl was in the cafeteria silently, hear me well, silently giving thanks for meal. A principal told her, what you're doing is illegal, it's against the law, and send her home. Now, know well, it is not illegal. But Hosea 4.6 says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. We have been ignorant, and we've been to milling mouths. It's about time we grow a backbone and push back against this secularism. Let me tell you, you look at how that has polluted the educational system in our country. You know, both Stalin and Hitler said the same thing. Give me the children and I will rule the world. So there is a concerted effort to begin to brainwash our kids from kindergarten on up with this secular humanism. But think about it. Without a biblical foundation, where is the moral compass? Where is the accountability? If you're not accountable to God, who are you going to be accountable to? All the schools say it, secular humanism says you're accountable to yourself. If it feels good, do it. That's the philosophy of today. Now, let me uh, talk a little bit about history. And let me say this. If I step on your toes, just say, ouch, and do something about it. 1962, prayer was removed from all public schools. There may be people here old enough to remember when we prayed in school. That became illegal after 1962. A year later, in 1963, the Bible was banned from all public schools. Do you know who printed the first Bible in America? Congress. Congress printed the very first Bible in America. You know what was the purpose? So it would be the principal textbook in every primary school, high school, and universities. And it was sold for over 160 years. So much for separation of church and state, isn't it? See, most kids in America don't know that. Most adults in America don't know that. Right. So our schools were primarily for teaching the Word of God. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the very first reading book in America is called the New England Premier. The New England Premier has 26 pages. First page has a big letter A and then a verse of scripture that starts with A. Second page, letter B, and a verse of scripture that starts with B, all the way to Z. So that's how kids learn to read. You know the second byproduct of that? They ended up memorizing 26 verses of scripture. But So that's our foundation. But here is the sad thing. In spite of these two abominable decisions the church remained silent their excuse is a political issue let me ask you a question how can you call prayer a political issue how can you call bible study a political issue but that is exactly what the church did the consequence of that silence You can look at the statistics. Teen pregnancy skyrocketed after 1963, and so did violent crime. All as a result of removing prayer and Bible study for schools. Ten years later, 1973, the Supreme Court decided that a baby in the womb did not have that unalienable right to life from our Creator. As stated in the Declaration of Independence, and they legalize abortion. Again, the church remains silent. Same excuse, it's a political issue. Consequence of that silence 60 million babies across America have been murdered by abortion. God help us. The blood of 60 million babies is crying out to God like the blood of Abel did. We as the church of the living God need to fall on our faces in corporate repentance for the sin of abortion. I'll tell you what, how different would it have been if millions of pastors across America would have said, we will not comply. Listen, I know the Constitution very well. You look at Article 3 of the Constitution, which deals with the judicial branch. I don't find anywhere in Article 3 where the judicial branch has the authority to make law. All they can do is render opinions. See, we can't be brainwashed. It's not the law of the land because they said it. It's just their opinion. We need to do away with this judicial activism and having judges trying to make law. According to the Constitution, only the legislative branch can make law. But you see, if we are ignorant against Hosea 4, 6, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And if we just sit back and take it because it's not politically correct to stand against the wave that's coming, well, we better stand or we're going to be rolled over. We got to stand for righteousness. And then on June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court basically said God got it wrong. God was mistaken, God got it wrong. Genesis 1, 27. God says, let us create man in our own image. In the image of God created he them. Male and female created he them. And then it says a little further, for that reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his own wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But the Supreme Court said, no, 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 no. God got it wrong. Marriage doesn't have to be between a man and a woman. It can be anything you want it to be. It could be three men and a horse. (laughs) And by the way, I'm not extrapolating. In England, just a few years ago, a woman married a dog. And you see. And, of course, worse than that, they called it a civil right. You know, they use the Fourth Amendment to call it a civil right. But I'll tell you something. We need to understand. This decision is much more than about same-sex marriage. At the root of this decision is the destruction of the family. Because the family is the foundation of our society. If you destroy the family, you destroy society. It's that simple. And it's also a violation of our religious liberty. Let me tell you what. They've been trying to come over and over again to push pastors. I have some friends in Iowa, uh, the Grimes. You know, homosexual couple came to their church demanding to be married. They refused. They lost their church. And you know something? That couple had been married three months before. It wasn't even about marrying them. It was about shutting down their business, their ministry. It is a direct frontal attack on our religious freedom. But I'll tell you what, we better stand for righteousness. Now, as a consequence of that, we have something that, by the way, we have sitting in the front row Representative Barbara Nash, who have served this state well. Let's give her a hand. And uh, she is a servant of we the people. And she knows well about these SOGI ordinances. Sexual orientation and gender identity ordinances. These are what are called the bathroom laws. Saying that a man can walk into a woman's bathroom if he, quote, Feels like a woman today. Well, you know, I spent last year a lot of time in Austin trying to influence the legislature to pass the privacy bill. We passed it in the Senate, failed in the House. We held three pastor's conferences at the Capitol. These sexual orientation and gender identity ordinances, these bathroom laws, and this will shock you, In conservative Bible Belt, Texas, there are over 200, listen to me well, 200, 200 municipalities, 200 cities and towns in Texas where that is the law of the land, where a man can walk into a woman's bathroom. You know why that has happened? Because Christians are not running for city council. Christians are not running for mayor. It is our fault because we bought this garbage of separation of church and state, and we've said, I'm sure all of you have heard it. Well, politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it. Have you heard it? I'm not going to ask you if you said it. (laughs) Politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it, and you wash your hands it. Let me tell you, in the city of Houston, a few years ago, we had a homosexual mayor by the name of Anise Parker, with the aid of city council one of those bathroom laws five pastors stood against her and tried to mobilize pastors across Houston to put a referendum to undo that wicked ordinance they were attacked she subpoenaed all of their sermons all of their sermon notes and all five of those pastors praised God Pastor David Welsh, Pastor Herman Castano, Pastor Riggle, Pastor Hewin, and they all five said, we will not surrender. Come and get us. Yeah. Remember Gonzalez? Yeah. Come and take it. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what. It took over $600,000 of legal fees and two years to rescind that ordinance, but I'll give you the good news. When they finally had the referendum, it was beat by 62% because the people in the churches finally got together, went to the polls, and threw it out. That's what can happen when we get involved. We have to get involved. now. You look at 1 and 2 Chronicles and First and Second Kings, you find something that has a 100% correlation. Every time Israel or Judah had a righteous king, the whole country followed the Lord. There was peace. There was prosperity. There was harmony. Every time Israel or Judah had a wicked king, the whole country went to the dumps. They had idolatry. They had wars. They had famines. As the king went, So went the people. We got a responsibility to elect righteous leaders. Now, did you know that the Bible tells you exactly who to vote for? Very, very clearly the Bible tells you who to vote for. (coughs) Let me put it in context. Moses has just crossed the Red Sea. And now he's in the wilderness trying to govern about 2 million people. The Bible says 600,000 men plus women and children. So, two million more. And Moses is going bananas. Here comes his father-in-law, Jethro. And in Exodus 21, he says, Jethro, what you're doing is not good. And in Exodus 21, uh, uh, God says, through Jethro, you select from among the people. Now, that word select in the Hebrew, same word as elect. And then God gives four qualifications. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. going to repeat it for this side. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Now, let's take it one at a time. Able men and women, of course. What does that mean? That means you elect men and women who are capable of doing the job. Number two, such as fear God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, knowledge you can acquire through books. Wisdom is a divine attribute. It comes from God. So we need to elect men and women that are founded upon the Judeo-Christian principles that this country is founded on. Because this is the foundation that has made America the greatest country on the face of the earth. So able men, such as fear God. Number three, men of truth. Let me ask you a question. Aren't you sick and tired of men and women of lies in politics? Have any of you come across a candidate for public office that will tell you all these wonderful things they're going to do, only to get elected and do exactly the opposite. Can I see your hands? Wow, just about everybody. But you know, that one is easy to fix. Jesus gave us the answer. Jesus said, ye shall know them by their fruits about time we do some fruit checking. Don't ask a politician to tell you, because you know what they're going to do? They're going to tell you what they think you want to hear. They're going to tickle your ears. Yeah. You need to tell them, don't tell me, show me. Show me the scars. When have you fought to preserve every life from conception to natural death, when have you fought to keep the government from sticking their hands into my pocket to steal my money in taxes to go give it out in handouts? When have you fought to protect my right to keep and bear arms to be able to protect myself and my family? Show me. Number four, hating covetousness. Something very interesting about covetousness in politics is not mainly about money it is about power and control politicians covet power and they covet the control that power gives them over with the people that's why we have people in washington that have been there for 36 years yeah. and they don't want to leave because they are drunk with that power yeah. that's why we need term Limit. <laughs> go do the job and then go back home to your work. Okay, so now you know how to vet any candidate for qualifications: Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. It continues. And you set them up as rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of ten. So the model you have is Moses, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of ten. That's equivalent to federal government, state government, county government, local government. Verse 22, and only take up to Moses, that is to the federal government, matters of great importance. Everything else you handle yourself at the local level. That is the essence of federalism. That is Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. That's the Ninth Amendment and the 10th Amendment. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution is called the enumerated powers of Congress. Eighteen powers described in Article 1, Section 8. If it ain't there, federal government's got no business being involved in it. Let me give you a couple of examples. The word education, nowhere in Article 1, Section 8. And let me ask you, does it make any sense to have a bunch of unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. deciding how to educate our children and grandchildren? No. That decision needs to be at the local level with the local school board, with parents and teachers. I'm so glad we got right here an 18-year-old that he's stepping up to run for the local school board. And you know, I told him earlier, I said, you know the greatest thing that you're bringing to the school board? You got a bunch of people on that school board that are 60 years old or older. They haven't been in school for 40 years. They have no clue what's happening in the schools today you got a very, very clear perspective of what's happening today. You're going to make a great impact on that school board and I just commend you for taking that leadership. So, now let me talk to you about before I get out of here why we are a constitutional representative republic and we are not a democracy. Because you know something most of America doesn't know. Certainly our kids do not know. But let me say this, democracy does not work. Mm -hmm. Democracy has never worked. The best way to describe democracy is mob rule. Under a democracy. And listen well, because this is not taught in the schools today. Under a democracy, a minority has zero rights. Best example of democracy is Rwanda, the Houthis and the Tutsis. The 80% killed the 20%. Over 1 million people were murdered in the name of democracy. A constitutional representative republic means that the right of every individual is protected. Now, we elect our government representatives through a democratic process of majority vote. But we govern as a republic, not as a democracy. Does anybody, everybody understand? All right. Now. You look at Proverbs 29.2. This is a verse of scripture you need to memorize. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked bear rule, people mourn. If the righteous, the people that are governed by the Judeo-Christian principles that have made America the greatest country on the face of the earth, if those people are not running for office, if those people are not voting, what is left? The wicked electing the wicked. And it becomes our fault. Yeah. How many of you are old enough to remember Pogo? The comic strip yeah. Pogo? Okay. Greatest thing Pogo ever said. Yeah. I found the enemy, and the enemy is us. Our complacency can destroy America. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked bear through, people mourn. And I told you earlier, we are the righteous. Yes. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. We have a responsibility. Yes. We have a stewardship responsibility to preserve this great country of ours, Amen. to vote for righteous candidates. Amen. There is an election in just about two weeks. As a matter of fact, early voting starts tomorrow. Make sure, number one, that you vote. But more than that, that you vote for righteous candidates. That you vote for men and women that will uphold the rule of law, the constitution, limited government, life. Life. I'll tell you what, Proverbs chapter 6 says that God hates the shedding of innocent life. Not many places that it says that God hates something. But in Proverbs chapter 6, very clearly he says that he hates the shedding of innocent life. How can we as Christians vote for anyone who's in favor of the killing of 60 million babies? We'll have to answer to God for that. We need to vote for righteous leaders. Now, Charles Finney, one of the great leaders of the Second Great Awakening, He's talking to pastors and he said, Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree. If there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. Now let me ask you a question. Is there a decay of conscience today? Absolutely. You can see it everywhere. If the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. You know something? The public press today has no resemblance to the truth. Truth is not their objective anymore. It's a propaganda machine to promote their ungodly, secular humanist ideas. And I'll tell you what, why is the pulpit responsible for it? Because we've been too quiet. On behalf of being politically correct, we've been silent behind the pulpit. It's about time Jesus said, Shout it from the house stops. Yes. He said if the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. Well, that one is very easy to see if you turn on Christian television. Now, I'm not going to condemn all the Christian television programs, there are some great ones. But there are some that you better not stay in that channel or you're going to be contaminated. You got to have a lot of discernment to watch Christian television. Because there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad, too. If the world loses an interest in religion, that's happening everywhere. certainly happening in America. And obviously, the pulpit is responsible. But look at the next two. If Satan rules the halls of legislation, is that happening today? He says the pulpit is responsible for it. Look at the next one. If our politics become so corrupt, that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away. He says the pulpit is responsible for it. Now, why doesn't he blame the politicians? Why does he blame the pulpit? The next statement tells you why. Listen carefully to the next statement. Let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay it to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. You know, too many of us have heard so many times, I've heard pastors say this, I've heard Christians say this, politics cannot legislate morality. Have you heard it? That is a lie. Politics legislates morality all the time. What do you think it was? When politics legislated prayer out of school. When they legislated the Bible out of school. When they legislated abortion. When they legislated same-sex marriage. Is that not legislating morality? But you know what? The ones who are in power are going to legislate their brand of morality. How do we change that? We have to have righteous people in government at every position, from the bottom to the top. Let me talk to you about two Nazi, the two pastors in Nazi Germany. The first was Martin E. Mueller. Martin E. Mueller said, first they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Finally, they came for me, and there was no one left to speak on my behalf. Amen. Now, Pastor Lee Mueller was, like most pastors in Germany, a Lutheran pastor. He was dressed all in black with a pastoral collar. He is arrested one day, thrown into a jail cell with a bunch of drunks, The next morning, a Lutheran chaplain, dressed just like Niemuller, comes to that jail and sees this guy dressed just like him. And he says, my brother, why are you in there? Niemuller gets up and says, my dear brother, considering what's happening to our nation, why are you not in here with me? Neemuller was a a light in the midst of the darkness. Let me tell you about another pastor. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Look at the next statement. God will not Hold us guiltless. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Our silence speaks very loudly. Proverbs seventeen fifteen says, He who justifies the wicked, or he that condemns the just, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. How long are we going to remain silent? But you know there's a much, much more important question, and it is this. Are we going to have to answer to God for our silence? That's pretty pretty awesome. Ephesians 5.11 says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. I like the translation that says, but rather expose them. We have a responsibility to elect righteous leaders. We need to stop being politically correct and become biblically correct. We have a responsibility to be light to those who are in darkness. You know, I don't know about you. I have one goal in life that overshadows everything else. My main goal in life is to one day hear my Savior say, well Amen. done, good and faithful servant. Everything else is immaterial. I'm gonna leave you with one verse of scripture. Galatians chapter five, verse one. Stand fast therefore, in the liberty who are with Christ has set you free. And do not entangle yourselves again with the yoke of bondage. You know, perhaps some of us are in bondage to sin. Perhaps you're in bondage to just constantly failing to sin. Perhaps you're in bondage to an addiction. It may be cigarettes or alcohols or drugs or gossiping or a critical spirit, or soap operas. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, Jesus said, I came to set the captives free. Every eye closed, please. If you say, yes, I'm struggling through life, and the more I try, the more I fail, and I need to be set free, Only Jesus Christ can do that. Jesus Christ loves you so much that he went to the cross on my behalf, on your behalf, that we who were without hope may find hope in him. He took upon himself all of our sins that we may be able to receive his righteousness, the promise of an abundant life, full of his presence here on earth and the promise of eternal life with him. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you have not made that commitment to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, I want you to lift your hand. Nobody's watching. I want you to raise up your hand. I want to pray for you. And if you say, well, I did make a a prayer years ago to commit my life to Jesus Christ, but I am not walking where I am, where I'm supposed to be. I have fallen back. Jesus has ceased to become my priority in life. I need to recognize.